Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to look at the NICE guidelines on chronic heart failure. My name is Fernando Florido and I'm a GP in the United Kingdom. Remember that there's also a YouTube version of these episodes, so have a look in the podcast description. Let's jump straight into it. The first recommendation given by NICE is probably something that is often neglected and this is to write a care plan for every patient with heart failure. This care plan must include diagnosis and cause, medication and monitoring, functional abilities and any social circumstances, details of clinical management including symptoms to look out for in case of deterioration, how to access the specialist team, contact details for a named healthcare coordinator or alternative specialist care providers for urgent care or review. When it comes to making the diagnosis, we will base it initially on the history and clinical examination. Some of the typical symptoms of heart failure may include shortness of breath on exertion or when lying down, fatigue and weakness, bilateral leg, ankle or foot swelling, rapid or regular pulse, reduced ability to exercise, a persistent cough or wheezing, abdominal swelling and a very rapid weight gain from fluid retention. Examples of examination findings in left-sided heart failure include cool, clammy skin, cyanosis, a laterally displaced point of maximum impulse consistent of an enlarged ventricle, and on auscultation we can find crackles in both lung fields and gallop rhythm. Signs in right-sided heart failure include an elevated jugular venous pressure, ankle or leg edema, ascites, hepatomegaly, a parasternal heave and hepatojugular reflux. Signs of both left and right-sided heart failure can be present. In order to confirm the diagnosis, we will measure the N-terminal pro-B-type natriuretic peptide, also known as NT-pro-BNP, and we will refer for a transthoracic echocardiography within two weeks if the NT-pro-BNP level is above 2,000 nanograms per liter or 236 picomoles per liter. And the urgency is because very high NT-proBNP levels carry a poor prognosis. Or we can refer within six weeks if the NT-proBNP level is between 400 and 2,000 nanograms per liter or 47 to 236 picomoles per liter. An NT-proBNP level of less than 400 nanograms per liter or 47 picomoles per liter in an untreated person makes the diagnosis of heart failure less likely. In these cases, we will look for alternative causes. But we must remember that the NT-proBNP level does not differentiate between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Also, the NT-proBNP level can be reduced by obesity, African or African-Caribbean family background or treatment with heart failure drugs such as diuretics, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. Finally, the NT-proBNP level can be increased due to causes other than heart failure, for example, age over 70 years, left ventricular hypertrophy, ischemia, tachycardia, 
right ventricular overload, hypoxemia, including PE and COPD, renal failure with an EGFR less than 60, sepsis, diabetes and liver cirrhosis. The purpose of transthoracic echocardiography is to exclude valve disease, assess the systolic and diastolic ventricular function and detect intracardiac shunts. Heart failure caused by valve disease will need specialist referral. We will arrange alternative imaging, for example radionuclide angiography, a cardiac MRI, or transesophageal echocardiography if the transthoracic echocardiography gives a poor image. We will also arrange other tests, including an ECG, a chest X-ray, blood tests, including a full blood count, renal, liver and thyroid function tests, as well as a lipid profile and HbA1c. We will also do a urinalysis and peak flow or spirometry as needed. In order to give the necessary information to the patient, NICE recommends an extended first consultation followed by a second consultation two weeks later. When it comes to treatment, there are specific recommendations for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But first, we will look at the advice for all types of heart failure. Firstly, we will give diuretics for the relief of congestive symptoms and fluid retention and titrate them up and down according to need. In particular, in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, we will normally give no more than a low to medium dose of loop diuretics, for example less than 80 mg of frusimide per day, and refer if this is not enough. By the way, just to clarify, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is usually associated with impaired left ventricular relaxation rather than left ventricular contraction and is characterized by normal left ventricular rejection fraction with evidence of diastolic dysfunction. A mutarone initiation will be by a specialist and we will review the need to continue at every six monthly clinical review. A mutarone monitoring must include six monthly liver and thyroid function tests. In sinus rhythm, anticoagulation should be considered for those patients with a history of thromboembolism, less ventricular aneurysm or intracardiac thrombus. We will now focus on the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. By the way, I just want to clarify that heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is when the ejection fraction is below 40%. By way of introduction, we will say that some SGLT2 inhibitors such as dapaglifosin and empaglifosin, have been shown to help in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, even in the non-diabetic population. The guidance on their use in heart failure is covered outside this guideline, but in summary, NICE says that both dapaglifosin and empaglifosin are recommended as an option for treating symptomatic chronic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in adults only if it is used as an add-on to optimized standard care with ACE inhibitors or ARBs, beta blockers, mineralocortical receptor antagonists or sacubitril valsartan. I will put the link to the full SGLT2 guidance in heart failure in the episode description. In terms of calcium channel blockers, we will avoid verapamil, Daltazem and short-acting dihydropyridine agents such as standard-release nifedipine in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. 
Now the first line treatment in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is as follows. First, an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker licensed for heart failure. The beta blockers licensed for heart failure in the UK are bisoprolol, carvedilol and nebivolol. And we will use our clinical judgment when deciding which drug to start first. But we will not give an ACE inhibitor if there is hemodynamically significant valve disease until the valve disease has been assessed by a specialist. We will give an A or B licensed for heart failure if there are side effects with ACE inhibitors. A or B licensed for heart failure in the UK are candesartan, losartan and valsartan. If neither ACE inhibitors nor ARBs are tolerated, we will seek a specialist advice in order to consider hydralazine in combination with nitrates. We will not withhold beta blockers only because of age or the presence of peripheral vascular disease, erectile dysfunction, diabetes, interstitial pulmonary disease or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And if stable, we will switch people already taking a beta blocker for a comorbidity, for example angina or hypertension, to a beta blocker licensed for heart failure, that is again bisoprolol, carvedilol and nebivolol in the UK. If there are persistent symptoms, we will then give a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, such as paranolactone or a plerinone, in addition to an ACE inhibitor or ARB and a beta blocker. Now, for all these drugs, that is the ACE inhibitor, ARB, beta blockers, and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, we will start at a low dose and titrate upwards at short intervals, for example every two weeks, until the target or maximum tolerated dose is reached. We will measure the blood pressure and renal function, including sodium and potassium levels, before and one to two weeks after starting the drug and after each dose increment. We will also assess heart rate if given beta blockers. Once the target or maximum tolerated dose is reached, we will monitor treatment monthly for three months and then at least every six months and at any time the person becomes unwell. NICE recommends that the following drugs should be initiated by a specialist, that is, Ivabradin, Sacubitril-Varsartan, Hydralazine in combination with nitrates, and Digoxin. Ivabradin is recommended for moderate to severe stable chronic heart failure with systolic dysfunction and sinus rhythm with a heart rate of 75 per minute or more, and in combination with standard therapy, including beta blocker therapy, ACE inhibitors and aldosterone antagonists or when beta blocker therapy is contraindicated or not tolerated and with a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 35%. Sacubitril varsartan is recommended if there is moderate to severe heart failure and there is a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less and already taking a stable dose of ACE inhibitors or ARBs. By the way, if you want to learn a bit more about Sacubitril Valsartan, stick around until the end and I will give you a bit more information about it then. Hydralazine in combination with nitrates is recommended especially if the person is of African or Caribbean family origin and has moderate to severe heart failure with reduced ejection fraction.
Digoxin is recommended for worsening of severe symptoms despite first-line treatment. Routine monitoring of serum digoxin concentrations is not recommended. A digoxin concentration measured within 8-12 hours of the last dose may be useful to confirm a clinical impression of toxicity or non-adherence. There are special considerations when treating heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in people with chronic kidney disease or CKD. If the EGFR is between 30 and 45, we will offer the same treatment by using lower doses and slower titration of ACE inhibitors, ARBs, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and digoxin. If the EGFR is below 30, we will involve the renal team and we will closely monitor the medication of CKD patients because of the increased risk of hyperkalemia. Other general recommendations in terms of management are an annual flu vaccination and once only pneumococcal vaccination, contraception and pregnancy advice for women of childbearing potential, give appropriate advice on smoking and alcohol, air travel will be possible for most depending on their clinical condition, in terms of driving, there may be restrictions for large goods and passenger carrying vehicles and in the UK we will check the DVLA for the most recent regulations. We will not routinely restrict sodium or fluid consumption. Instead, we will ask about salt and fluid consumption and advise fluid restriction if there is dilutional hyponatremia or advise reducing intake if there are high levels of salt and or fluid consumption. We will, however, advise to avoid using salt substitutes that contain potassium. In terms of further monitoring for all types of heart failure, apart from what has already been discussed, we will carry out a full clinical assessment at every review. If a person is taking digoxin or a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, we will monitor potassium levels closely and we will consider monitoring NT-proBNP levels only if the patient is under 75 years of age, there is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and the EGFR is above 60. Remember that age over 70 and EGFR below 60 can increase the anti-proBNP levels. In terms of interventional procedures, coronary revascularization should not be routinely offered, but cardiotransplantation implantable cardioverter fibrillators and cardiac resynchronization therapy can be offered to the right patients. Cardiac rehabilitation should normally be offered unless the heart failure is unstable. And finally, in palliative care, we will not offer long-term home oxygen therapy, although it may still be offered for comorbidities, such as for some people with COPD. Now, this is the end of the summary of the NICE guideline on chronic heart failure. But if you're interested in learning how Sacubitril Valsartan works, here is some more background information. The first thing to understand is that the pathophysiology of heart failure involves an abnormal activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. This leads to vasoconstriction, hypertension, increased aldosterone levels, increased sympathetic tone and eventually cardiac remodeling all of which worsen the disease over time. ACE inhibitors or ARBs play a major role in reducing heart failure morbidity and mortality by blocking this abnormal activation. 
At the same time that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is activated, the natriuretic peptide system is also activated, hence the elevated BNP and anti-proBNP levels seen in heart failure. This compensatory mechanism leads to vasodilation, natriuresis and diuresis. As a result, the natriuretic peptide system decreases blood pressure, lowers the sympathetic tone and reduces aldosterone levels. The natriuretic peptide system functions antagonistically to the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and has a favourable impact on heart failure. Natriuretic peptides are broken down by an enzyme called neprilysin. Sacubitril valsartan is a combination product. Sacubitril is a prodrug that upon activation acts as a neprilysin inhibitor. So it works by blocking the action of neprilysin, thus preventing the breakdown of natriuretic peptides, which leads to a prolonged duration of the favourable effects of these peptides. However, because neprilysin also breaks down angiotensin II, inhibiting neprilysin will accumulate angiotensin II. For this reason, a neprilysin inhibitor, such as sacubitril, cannot be used alone. It must always be combined with an ARB to block the effect of the excess angiotensin II. This is why valsartan is used here. Another important substance broken down by neprilysin is bradykinin. Neprilysin inhibition will also cause a buildup of bradykinin. Therefore, sacubitril cannot be used with an ACE inhibitor due to an increased risk of angioedema if both these drugs are combined or given in a short time frame. And this is why, when switching between ACE inhibitors and sacubitril valsartan, the patient must undergo a 36-hour washout period to lower the risk of angioedema. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope that you have found it useful and I hope that you will join me in the next one. Thank you for listening and goodbye.